you're a guest, we're glad you're here. We pray God's blessing on you. We are uh, going through... That's really cool effect, but probably would distract everybody. Um, we are going through the book of Revelation as a church, uh, just as we make our way through all of Scripture. It's not because of a particular fascination with Revelation, uh, but because it occupies 22 chapters in the Bible and uh, therefore is worthy of our attention. We're making our way. We are actually at Revelation 20 today, um, and this message will be a little different than normal because... Um, you will see this is the chapter that everybody talks about uh, when they talk about Revelation. Uh, we are going to jump right in. Um, it'll be a little different today because I'm going to cover some history and broader biblical theology because I think that's important for us to understand this chapter. So hang on. By the way, um, there's going to be a lot of content in this message. I have 25 copies of the actual manuscript to the message on the black table in the other room, and I will make it available online. So don't panic. Uh, if you can't write fast enough, I just want to just let you soak it in and then take time to think about it this week. Well, thinking about this um, message brought a memory back to me. In 2002, Peg and I uh, relocated to this area to plant the church along with our young children at the time. And we were looking for schools for the kids. And one of the schools we considered uh, looked great in so many ways. Uh, it had the sort of curriculum that we wanted. Uh, having the Word of God as the authority, uh, seeking to shape the children in a gracious environment and call them to academic rigor, but also lots of great extracurricular activities. It just looked great all around, and we were thinking, we'll, we'll probably send the kids to this school. We, we've done all sorts of things for schooling, by the way. We've done public school, private school, homeschooling, uh, but we were considering this school. And um, they had a statement of faith that you had to sign, and that, that's, that makes sense because uh, this is a Christian school. But there was one thing that was really odd in that statement of faith. It had all these things that were really important. And then it had this one line um, that said, we believe in, uh, in the premillennial return of Christ. Uh, and that's fine. But actually, to send our kids to the school, we had to sign a statement saying that we agreed with that too. And all the other stuff made sense because it had to do with the divinity of Christ, the authority of the word, all these important things. But it had this one thing about believing in a premillennial return of Christ. Uh, and it just seemed really odd. And actually, um, I didn't necessarily have a problem with that view, but, but we weren't able to sign it because I couldn't say, you know, I'm going to affirm that in every way. Um, it was odd to us. And maybe for you, it sounds really odd. Or maybe it's totally what you've known. And you're thinking, of course. Uh, of course you need to have that there for participation in the school. Um, I share that story because we're coming to Revelation chapter 20 and we're going to talk about the millennium. And from that story, maybe your experience, maybe your particular views as well, um, you have or experience people putting a lot of weight in these verses we're, we're coming up to. Actually, just 10 verses in Revelation. You hear people making a lot uh, about the millennium and maybe even doing things like this church and school did where they require people to subscribe to a particular view. Um, I recently told a pastor that we were going through Revelation uh, as a church and the very first thing he asked me was, well, what's your view on the millennium? And um, 
and uh, I kind of have an answer for him. I won't give you that answer. It was a gracious answer. It wasn't necessarily what he was expecting. Um, but it was interesting. When he heard Revelation, he, the first thing he thought of was the millennium. And what your belief in the millennium is. And so I, I think it's important for me in this message to take time before we dig into Revelation 21 through 10, and we'll read it this morning, but to talk a little bit about the background and a little, about, a little bit about the historical reality that has led us to the place where a pastor would ask me first off when I mentioned Revelation, what's your view on the millennium? And a church school would say, you must sign and agree that, you're, that Christ will return before the millennium. So we're going to take time to back up and to cover some of the reasons um, that, that this part of Scripture is, carries so much weight. Uh, and that the goal in this is not to just to discover particular views and, and so forth, or uh, to be controversial in any way. I really want to help you guys better understand what, what I trust God would intend in these ten verses. So I want to back up and understand the history and so forth, what's gone on, and then I want to lead us through how, would I, how I would understand Revelation 21 through 10, and why. So there's a lot of unpacking and packing that we have to do conceptually in all this. So let's pray and ask God for his help as, as we do this. Lord, how I need your help, how we need your help, and we thank you, Lord, you're faithful to help us. We thank you for your word. Your word is clear. It's been given to us so we might understand truth, particularly in the essentials as well as the important secondaries, Lord, your word is clear. And Lord, we know reading the book of Revelation, it's meant for a blessing. It's meant to be a real blessing, not a book of confusion. And so I pray, Lord, as we've gone along, that you'd help us understand what you're talking about, what you want us to believe, and how you want us to live in light of this. And I pray as we go through this today, Revelation 21 to 10, and this background discussion, Lord, help me to serve your precious people your blood-bought people, Lord, and those who will be here not yet knowing you, that they might be blessed and come to understand you and your teaching. We look to you, we trust you, our faithful God, and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> Let me read chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, and we'll, I'll, I'll briefly summarize it, and then we'll dig into the other stuff. So chapter 20, verse 1 through 10. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed, also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. It will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. 
And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 10. So briefly what's going on here is uh, the devil is being bound. He's been in prison for a thousand years. He's kept from deceiving the nations in this. And then what happens is John sees the souls of the martyrs and those who have not taken the mark of the beast. So that, that mark, uh, the sign of belonging to the beast, belonging to this worldly system of, of government and religion in opposition to God. They've not taken this mark. They've not bowed their knee to those things, but trusted in the Lord. So both the martyrs and those who have not taken the mark, they come to life and they reign with Christ for a thousand years. After the thousand years, the devil is released from this pit, this prison, and there's a final battle and a final judgment, final judgment of the devil. And then actually, if we had read a little further, it's the judgment of all humankind. So that's what's going on here. And of particular interest is this phrase, 1,000 years. It occurs six times in these ten verses. It only occurs three times in the whole rest of Scripture. Six times in these ten verses, only three times in the whole rest of Scripture, and every instance in the rest of Scripture, it merely means a long time. It doesn't mean a literal thousand years. It means a long time. So uh, a, a thousand years is like the day, a day with the Lord. A day is like a thousand years. That's the sort of usage that you see elsewhere in Scripture. So here we see it six times, but nowhere else. Nevertheless, this idea of the thousand years continues to hold great importance for many Christians. And the opening story I gave is repeated again and again. I, I have other stories. I know a friend who couldn't be ordained in his denomination because he would not subscribe to a premillennial return of Christ. I, uh, John MacArthur, a man I respect greatly, has more or less said that if you don't hold a premillennial view of Christ's return, then you are unfaithful to Scripture and in danger of dishonoring God's word basically has said that. So, so this is a big issue, um, this idea of the millennium. That's what a uh, millennium means, a thousand years. Just so you know, and it's absolutely clear, King of Grace Church does not hold a position on the millennium. Okay, we don't require our members to sign anything. We don't, even as an eldership, have a view on this. And our family of churches does not have a view on the millennium. Okay, we don't require you to be premillennial, well, and I'm, I'll describe these terms, postmillennial or amillennial. You don't have to have a position. Um, and for our elders, we, we certainly, you have to have a position on the return of Christ and his, the resurrection and, and final judgment, but not the millennium. Um, so we, have, we uh, probably have some diversity. I actually have not talked to all the guys to find out exactly where they are on this. So in some ways, I'm representing my understanding of Scripture in this. But we don't hold a view here. We don't require you to, to sign anything uh, as a church member. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's unimportant, and it doesn't mean that there isn't benefit and there aren't results that come from your particular view. I think, I think actually much of how you view the Christian life can be influenced by how you understand this. But we just don't see it as essential. And we understand that with just 10 verses in Revelation, uh, would it be really right to say you absolutely have to know and hold a position here? So, so I just want you to, with that, kind of relax a little bit and also give me a little bit of permission to maybe say things that you don't agree with on this. Um, and I'm not seeking to uh, 
to kind of make you, to pressure you, to, to influence you in, a, in any inappropriate way. But I will present to you what I think Scripture teaches, my understanding, my best understanding of this. But you just have to understand that in, in the whole breadth of Scripture, there's some things that are absolutely clear, and there's some things that aren't as clear. And we should hold those things that are absolutely clear with a tight grip. And the things that are unclear, we hold loosely. So this is one of those things we hold loosely. That's why we don't have a position as an eldership, as a church, or a family of churches. Nevertheless, there are implications uh, from your particular view. And there are some types of views, some ways that some hold this view that would, could be a problem, for not for membership, uh, but for our eldership. So just to, uh, I'll explain these terms as we go, but a dispensational premillennial view um, is not forbidden in our eldership or in our family of churches, but it, there's some aspects of it that might be difficult or incompatible with other aspects of our theology. Hang in there. If this stuff doesn't make any sense to you, that's okay. Uh, you'll have a chance to learn some things, and, and we will do our best to exp explain them as we go. Um, I will be teaching you what's called an amillennial view. Um, amillennial means no millennium, but that's a misnomer. Uh, an amillennial view is, is the view of that the millennium is a period of a, a long period of time. It's not a literal 1,000 years. It's a long period of time, and it characterizes the church age, the time from when Christ ascended to when he returns. So it's a picture of the church age, and, and uh, we'll get there eventually. Um, strictly speaking, it is a post-millennial view, because the post-millennial view says Christ comes post the millennium, after the millennium, after the 1,000 years he returns. In the broad spectrum of millennial views, there's post-millennial, and our millennial really is a version of post-millennial. The post-millennials usually are those that say that, that this 1,000 years represents some time between Christ's ascension and return, and some post-millennial people believe it's a literal 1,000 years that will come at the very end. Others say it's a time period. What they hold in common is a very optimistic view of the effect of the gospel. That the gospel will go out and influence the whole world, and it will influence it so greatly that not only will pretty much everyone come to Christ, but culture and technology and everything will be transformed by the fruit of the gospel. And you'll have a, a millennial sort of kingdom at the end because of the gospel. That's what a post-millennial believes. Our millennials believe that the gospel will be preached to all nations, will have an effect on all peoples, but we're a little bit reserved in those sort of statements because our millennials would say, well, the gospel will affect all nations. We don't know how many will come to believe. We trust there'll be a countless number at the very end, right? But, but we don't believe that there'll ever be a, until Christ returns, a removal of evil in the world, a removal of sin. So there'll still be an effect of the fall to the end. That's the amillennial position. The premillennial position believes that Jesus comes back before those 1,000 years. He comes back, he returns. There's 1,000 years of this kingdom where he reigns on earth with resurrected people and people who aren't resurrected yet together in this kingdom. Uh, and then after the, the end of that, Satan's released again. There's a final battle, then final judgment and re resurrection of the wicked and uh, everlasting, the new heavens and new earth. So those are the views. Um, you guys are hanging in there. Everyone's looking at me and that you're doing great. Again, the manuscript's available. Uh, but those are the views that are out there. There's one other view uh, that, that I've heard someone uh, share. It's called the panmillennial view. That pan-millennial view believes it will all pan out in the end. Um, that's, that's one other view. And I believe that view too. Um, so I'll be teaching you from a millennial view. And 
for some of us, you, you hear that and, and the hair in the back of your neck goes up. Let me just say very clearly that uh, the amillennial view has been associated with a low view of the Jewish people. Um, and I think that's uh, uncharacteristic of people I know. Certainly there could be people who hold that view. I think there's more than enough scripture outside of Revelation 21 through 10 to bolster our view of ethnic Israel, to bolster our graciousness towards them, our gratefulness to them, our uh, evangelism of them, and our eagerness to see a final harvest of them at the very end, okay? So, so I think scripture, other scriptures, give us a very high view of ethnic Israel, and we should, be, we should love them for the sake of the heritage we have and the hope of their re full redemption at the end. Um, Sometimes people associate an amillennial view with a low view of Scripture. They say you spiritualize the promises. Let me assure you that we do not I do not seek to spiritualize the promises, but to interpret the Old Testament promises as they're intended, as they're intended as interpreted through the New Testament. So we're not seeking to spiritualize promises. We're seeking to interpret them accurately in line with Scripture. That, that's simply uh, my commitment in that view. So just want to say that up front. If you're familiar with, with amillennial view, maybe the things... Uh, that are said about it. Uh, I do believe there is benefit in this view, and I trust that will come as we go along. So just want to say those things up front, and now what I want to dig into is a little bit of the history of how this section of Scripture has been understood, and I think it will help us kind of get a sense in, in, in all this of, of how to understand Revelation 20, at least to understand the history and where we are. And, and behind that, it's I, I want you to be able to understand why someone why a church school would ask you to sign as a parent of a student that you have a particular view. And that's where I want you to have, come to a place where you understand that and can interact with that. So a little bit of history. Well, Revelation 20, 1 through 10 was written a long time ago in the days of the early church, very early on, anywhere from 60 A.D. to 90 A.D., depending on your view. Uh, and so the church has known about this section of scripture for a long time and has discussed this idea of the millennium for a long time. Um, and if you look through the church fathers, you'll find some that would have a what's called a premillennial view. They believe that there would be this 1,000-year reign of Christ after his return. There were some who believed that. Uh, among the church fathers, uh, Papias and Justin Martyr are two that held that view. Um, I need to tell you, though, that the majority of the church fathers and the majority of the church fathers all the way up until the 1800s uh, had a either amillennial or postmillennial view. It was the majority view until the 1800s. Um, they believed the things that I talked about. They, it's hard to know sometimes exactly where they stood. They didn't write a lot about it. They didn't discuss it a whole lot. That's the reality. It wasn't, in those days, they did not have it on a statement for a child to enter a school. It was not at that level. Uh, but they did talk about it. And most of them held a postmillennial or amillennial view. If you are a fan of the Puritans, most of the Puritans were post-millennial. Uh, they were very hopeful about the work of the gospel transforming the world. Uh, Jonathan Edwards being an example of that. Uh, the, the Princeton fathers as well, most, most Puritans. There were some that were amillennial. There are some church fathers who were clearly amillennial, Augustine being one of them. But if you just look at and know some of the church fathers, Clements, Ignatius, Polycarp, Hermes, Melito, Hippolytus, Origen, Cyprian, and Luther and Calvin, they all held a pretty much a post-millennial or amillennial view. So mu much of history, that's been the major majority view. Everything changed in the 1800s. Um, there was a man named John Nelson Darby, a, a faithful brother, loved the Lord. He was involved in the Church of Ireland. God used him in the Church of Ireland actually to lead many people to Christ, many Irish Catholics who 
did not know Christ, came to Christ through him. And then he sought to add them to his local Church of Ireland church. And that was great until the bishop said they have to swear an oath of allegiance to the king. And if you know Irish history, that's a no-no. And it basically squashed all his evangelistic efforts. He was very disillusioned at that point. Uh, became very disillusioned with the established church and formed a group called the Plymouth Brethren, which are still around today, uh, with some other, uh, other people. And he came in the process of all that, he came to believe, as he interpreted Scripture, as he read Scripture, that the Old Testament promises that we find must be interpreted in light of how they would have been understood by that original audience. That, that they must be interpreted in a way that that first audience, not knowing the fullness of Christ's coming, uh, not understanding that, maybe not even, not, maybe some not even anticipating that at all, how they would have anticipated the fulfillment. So that's a conviction that was in his teaching. And kind of everything else followed from that. He created the system, theological system, called dispensationalism. It came out from John Nelson Darby. It was unpopular at first. They believed a number of things in dispensationalism. Now, one of the things is they tend to have a very low view of the church. I think you can understand that maybe from John uh, Darby's background, but, but it also fit into how they understood things unfolding. They basically understood that, that God's dealings are primarily uh, in historically with ethnic Israel. And then when Jesus came and when the gospel was largely rejected by the Jewish people, God turned to the Gentiles. And there was this season of bringing Gentiles in called the church age. But that would, that would be somewhat successful, but eventually there would be apostasy of falling away of the church, and there would be a remnant left. There would be a very uh, difficult times at the end for the church. And in that context, Jesus would come, uh, secretly return, and there would be a rapture uh, that his people, Gentiles, would be caught, and Jews believing at the time, I, I understand, would be caught up with him in the heavens to the secret rapture, be taken away off the earth, there'd be no more believing church, Gentile church. And then God would deal directly with ethnic Israel. And so there'd be a tribulation in that context. Uh, there'd be the Antichrist, the things that we've been reading about would all happen in that context. Uh, and, and there'd be a, a, a lot of ethnic Israel, ethnic Jews coming to Christ, and a, a great harvest. Uh, they would interpret some of the things like 144,000 as all Jewish people. And they, uh, this revival would happen in this tribulation, then Christ would return uh, in, in a powerful way, uh, smite all the enemies, and then establish a thousand-year reign where he would fulfill all the Old Testament promises in the way that John Nelson Darby understood them to be fulfilled, literally, uh, in, in the most immediate uh, understanding. And that's what would happen in that time. And, and that, uh, there's different variants of, of that belief, but that's, that's dispensational premillennialism. That's what he taught, and it was not very popular at first, um, but what, what started to happen in, in the context of the 1800s, um, most people were post-millennial, some were amillennial, very few were premillennial, and they were very hopeful about the church, but some things started to happen in the, in the late 1800s. One was that liberalism crept into the church, so mainline churches that had been full of life previously started to have people who started to doubt the authority of God's word, started to become more humanistic, more centered on mankind, what mankind can know and do for himself, and denying God really in them. Certainly denying Christ, the divinity of Christ, his atoning death for our sins. So there's this liberal slide 
and, and it tended to be connected with a humanistic postmillennialism. So basically they thought, you know, the world's going to get better because we're going to make it better. And, and, and it, it wasn't centered on the gospel, it was centered on just a positive view of mankind. So there was a liberalism that crept in and, and undermined the church and kind of uh, was characterized by a humanistic postmillennialism and an optimism. At the same time, some terrible wars happened in our country. First, the Civil War. Uh, more people really killed in the Civil War than any other war, and almost more than all the other wars combined. I think we just exceeded it recently. It was a terrible time um, where, where just so many people died. And by the way, it, it, it was a time when there were Christians on either side fighting each other, killing each other, because they believed God was on their side. So it introduced this kind of cynicism towards the church. So the optimism was replaced by cynicism. 1800s into the early 1900s, uh, uh, early 20th century, you have World War I, World War II. And so the combination, basically, of all this tragedy and of the liberalism sliding in and then uh, the influence of certain dispensational teachers, in particular at this point, D.L. Moody, who's very influential, and Schofield, who created the Schofield Bible, very influential. Uh, their teachings, th their influence was there anyhow. They become committed dispensationalists and start teaching it. And so now there's, there's this system that's associated with faithfulness to Scripture by, by a particular interpretation, and it's an alternative to a liberal postmillennialism, and it was appealing to people. And so people left postmillennial and amillennial views, started becoming dispensational premillennialists. And by the 1950s, so through all this influence, by the 1950s, it became the, the overwhelmingly dominant view for American Christianity. Um, big, long history lesson, uh, but I hope it, it helps you know um, why it is as it is now. Because premillennialism became synonymous with orthodoxy and faithfulness to Scripture. The ones that really believed in the authority of the word and were not going to compromise with the liberals and, and, and believe the truth and who had an explanation for the terrible things going on in the world were the dispensational premillennialists. So, so it became a litmus test for orthodoxy because those amillennialists and postmillennialists, they were mostly all liberals. But we're standing strong in the word of God and we're taking these promises literally. And so that seems to say, you know, we're faithful to the Old Testament. Uh, and to this day, one of the arguments against uh, amillennialism and postmillennialism is you're not doing that. And my answer is we're taking it as Scripture wants us to take it. That's, my, that's how I understand it. We need to interpret it as Scripture would. So I would disagree with John Nelson Darby. John Nelson Darby says it should be the, the Old Testament promises should be interpreted really solely or primarily by how it would have been understood by the original audience. And I would say that's not the hermeneutic, the, the interpreting principle of Scripture. The interpreting principle of Scripture is you interpret it through Jesus Christ. He's come to fulfill all things. You interpret it through him and those who speak authoritatively for him. Well, who does? The apostles, and where do we know where their teaching is? It's the Word of God, the New Testament. So we use the New Testament's principles of interpretation. And where it, there's a interpretation given, we stand on that. And where it's clear, we stand on clarity. And where it is not clarity, we hold it loosely. That, that's why I'm an amillennialist, by the way. So, uh, but, but you can understand, given the history, why people felt so strongly about premillennialism, because it represented orthodoxy. 
It represented faithfulness to Scripture. It represented a realistic approach to a world that was falling apart. Because those post-millennials were just optimistic and unrealistic. And so thus the appeal of this view. I hope that helps. In the remaining time, oh boy. You know, in my mind that took like five minutes, and and it it didn't. It took like a half hour. Uh, In the remaining time, what I want to do is just walk us through Scripture. And I want to present to you um, where Scripture, I believe, is clear on the millennium or things related to the millennium. What I want to tell you that, that I understand Scripture being very clear on is that there's one return of Christ. I believe it's clear that there's one return of Christ. There's one resurrection of the righteous and the evil that happens together. There's one judgment of mankind, the righteous and the evil together. And these things coincide time-wise. I believe Scripture is clear on that. And so I, I would not uh, be, we'll talk about this later, but the idea of a thousand years somewhere in between all that doesn't line up with the rest of Scripture. It can be an answer to Revelation 21 through 10, so I grant that. And it can be a way, maybe with the other verses, to fit it in there. But I find it hard to do that. So hang on to your seats. We're going to move through this really quickly. Again, the manuscripts are available. So first, Isaiah 11. This is a verse that's, that's used. It, pro- it speaks of this future paradise that's coming, this peace that Christ brings. And so it says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, speaking of the root of Jesse of Jesus, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he see, his eyes see or decide disputes but by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And, and uh, it goes on with that, that sh- sort of imagery of these of these former enemies being reconciled. Then it says in verse 9, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Now, premillennialists see that as happening in a thousand years. I would just say it's a picture of the reign of Christ. It's a picture of the peace that he brings. Uh, and, and we'll see as we go along where it can fit. Isaiah 25 promises this end time feast where death and tears and reproach are taken away. And so it says in Isaiah 25, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So it's speaking of this Removal of death, the wiping away of tears, and the taking away of reproach. Um, similarly, in Isaiah 65:20, there's a, a passage that we're going to read, and, uh, and it, and it uh, says that we're no longer going to die in infancy or even at 100. Now, the point here is not that people will die exactly at 100, but they won't die young anymore. That's the intent of this. And that can be fulfilled perhaps in a thousand-year time period or in the new heavens and the new earth, because you will never die. You won't not only die young, you'll never die. It says in Isaiah 65, 20, No more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a, a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Uh, and Daniel speaks of a kingdom. Daniel 7, And the kingdom and the dominion 
and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So this good could be understood as a thousand years, but I also think it fits neatly in the everlasting kingdom and the new heaven and the new earth. Daniel 12 speaks of a final resurrection of the faithful and the wicked together. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So there's a resurrection of the wicked and the faithful here together. Finally, Zechariah is also another passage that's used. It presents a unique day of the Lord where there'll be, uh, it'll be light even at nighttime. There'll be living waters flowing from Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus will, uh, will be king over the, all the earth. And some believe that that has to be fulfilled in the thousand years. I think I, Revelation 22 is the parallel verse we'll look at, that this is fulfilled in the new heaven and new earth. Zechariah 14 says, And there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but in evening, at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. That's Zechariah 14. So all these verses speak of this kingdom, and they speak of judgment, and they speak of resurrection. And some of these verses are used by people who would have a premillennial view to say it happens in a thousand years. I would say we'll, we'll see this. Each one can be understood as happening at the, at the very end, like all together in time. Um, thanks for your attention. You guys are doing great. We're going to keep on going. Matthew 24, uh, it says, Jesus is speaking. He says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So it's the visible, dramatic, audible return of Christ. And what does he do? He gathers his elect from all over the earth and all over heaven. All right? Happening at the same time. This is speaking of the resurrection of the righteous in this, in this case. Matthew 25, similarly, uh, this, is, um, this is Jesus when he returns and bringing judgment. So it happens, his return and judgment now happen together. Judgment of the righteous and the wicked. You guys probably know this parable of the sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All right, so he comes and he's on his throne. And what does he do on his throne? Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from the un another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So his return and his judgment. John 5. Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. At his return, they will hear his voice. And what happens? And come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. He returns, they are raised, and they go to life, or they go to judgment. All happening together. 1 Corinthians 15. Speaking of the resurrection. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So the resurrection happens at his coming. 
Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So he's destroying all those who oppose him at, his at the final resurrection. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So he destroys death as well. Um, so this is going together. 1 Corinthians 15 as well. Um, he's, he says similar things. Death, uh, and here we have death being dealt with. No more death. He's going to quote from Isaiah 25, which we read earlier. And he's also saying flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom. So this kingdom has people that are resurrected, not normal fleshly people like you and me. Because I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is a law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Isaiah 25, fulfilled in res resurrection, is what's going on here. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, similar verses. Uh, the dead rising, Christ coming back to bring judgment. Uh, I'm going to skip those and move ahead to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. This is an important one. Hebrews chapter 11 is talking about the heroes of the faith. And it's talking about Abraham and how Abraham understood the promises. So it's going to be telling to know how to interpret the promises made to Abraham because he was promised uh, descendants, as numerous as the stars, and a land. And so how does Hebrews 11 interpret how he expected those promises to be fulfilled. Well, let's read. Uh, he, in verse 15 of chapter 11, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But God had called them out of another land into the land of promise. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Key word, city. And then you just jump ahead a little bit in chapter 12. Speaking of believers, he says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So Abraham is interpreting the promises as a heavenly reward. But he's not interpreting it as that original audience might have understood, but he's interpreting it ultimately through Christ. He's understanding something. He's looking forward to a heavenly reward, and that reward ultimately comes in the New Jerusalem, which happens at the very end. Second Peter. Second Peter is writing to his church audience. These are Jews and Gentiles together, um, and he calls them to look forward not to a millennium, but to the new heaven and the new earth. Second Peter 3. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the millennium? No, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We looked last, uh, the other week at Revelation 19, uh, parallel, uh, Jesus coming back to judge, coming back with his people. Then I want to look at uh, Revelation 21, so... Thank you, Jan, for your following me. We're moving so fast. Revelation 21, 
then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things had passed away. Again, we, had saw, we saw that earlier in Isaiah, wiping away the tears. So the promise in Isaiah 25 is fulfilled, not here in the millennium, but in the new heaven and the new earth, the, the final new he- creation. Related to the Zechariah verse, Revelation 21 and 22, the next verse. And it says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So there's, there's never darkness, it's light all the time, just like it promised in Zechariah. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Zechariah talked about the nations streaming to Jerusalem. That's saying this is being fulfilled here. Uh, And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean shall ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those um, who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then verse 1 of chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of the Lamb, a throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Uh, and it goes on to speak of that. So Zechariah spoke of water flowing out of Jerusalem. So it's all, this is a parallel verse in Revelation 22 to Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14 is interpreted as the millennium, the thousand years. But in Revelation 22, it's very obvious this is after Revelation 20. This is the final, the new creation. So I know it's a lot to digest, and I, hopefully you're, you're still here uh, with us. And, I, and I don't, I'm not asking you to, to be where I am, but I, I want you to hear these verses and I want you to, to understand. I want you to see what is absolutely clear in Scripture. Jesus returns, he brings resurrection, and he brings final judgment. That's good news for those who have fled to Jesus. The core message of Revelation, guys, is that Jesus wins. And there'll be reward for those who have trusted him and followed him. And there will be punishment for those who have rejected him. And so there's a call in Revelation to hold on to Jesus, to be like him, to be faithful and true. That's the core message. It's not about the millennium, though it's here, and we can talk about that. And you can hold a different view, but it's clearly about these things. And I would submit that I I think all of Scripture is clearly about that. These verses I've gone through, I think, show what's clear. And just why I have this particular view is as I look at all these verses, I, I don't see any millennium there. The only place I could see it is in Revelation 19, um, 21 through 10. And so I have to bring the entirety of Scripture to this verse versus this verse to the entirety of Scripture. And I think we have to bring the interpretive grid that the New Testament brings to it as well. I hope that all makes sense. And I'm not asking you to agree with me. But I'm asking you to at least understand that a rigorous treatment of Scripture can lead one to this particular view. And I do think there are benefits of this view. Uh, I can talk a little bit about that next time. As the band comes up, um, we transition to communion. And Lord bless Jeff as he transitions us to communion out of this. Um, But uh, let me just keep our eyes on what is clear and most important. Uh, I want to challenge you to to think through what you believe, and maybe you have a dispensational premillennial view. And I would want to challenge that. 
but it's done in a friendly way. And by the way, I'll be here afterwards take, to do a little bit of Q&A. Uh, if you have questions, the manuscript's available as well. But let's keep our eyes on what is clear. Christ has come. He shed his blood for us to rescue us from our sin and, and holy just wrath. We have forgiveness in him. We have life in him. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. And he's called us to hold on to him, to be faithful and true as he is. And he will reward us for all things that we do in his name. The call also for those who have not pledged Jesus is come to Jesus. Because he will bring judgment. It will be a just judgment. And you don't want to stand on your own two feet. He invites you to come and trust him and believe. Let me pray. And we'll transition. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you. What we need to know is absolutely clear. Help us to understand your word and revelation in light of these things. Build us up. Glorify your name through our lives, we pray. In Christ's name.